What is up, people? Welcome to another episode of Real Talk. I'm Devin Readers. This is a podcast where we talk about all things inclusion and a little bit of nonsense. If you like this podcast and like what we're doing, please subscribe wherever you listen and write a review. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, it really helps folks find us. Also, if you would like to become a supporter of this podcast, you can use the link in the show notes. Thanks, guys. Let's get to the episode. Hey guys, Devin here. I just wanted to say that this interview, I'm going to give you some stuff about up front because it starts a little weird and it cuts off a little weird. And that's because I had to edit um, some stuff out for, I had to edit a lot of stuff out of this one. So, um... Um, yeah, just to let you guys know, it starts off weird and cuts out weird, but I will put another recording like this at the end, just like doing a little outro thing, so it's not that weird. But, uh, but, um, Shelly is one of my favorite human beings on the planet, and there is a lot of good information in here, so just bear with the weird editing, and you will get a lot of good information out of this podcast. My name is Devin Readers, and whoa, we've got Echo today, but we'll work through it. Um, today, we have one of my absolute favorite human, human beings on the planet, my former physical therapist, Shelly Canada. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Good. Um, so first of all, I tried to outdo myself with the intro, but it didn't work out. So first of all, uh, tell us about yourself and then we'll get into all that other stuff. Okay. I am a pediatric physical therapist and I've been a pediatric physical therapist for a children's hospital for 12 and a half years and as well as four or five years and um, I went to physical therapy school in Tennessee um, about 15 years ago and graduated in 2006. So tell us, like, what you do, like, what you treat and, like, what a typical day is like for you. On the job, I know you also have three children, but on the job, what is, <laughs> what is a typical day like for you? Okay, so our typical patients, so in pediatric physical therapy, it's um, a very broad range of different diagnoses. It can be neurological. Um, kids that have a neurological disorder, which is uh, has to do with damage to the brain or the spinal cord. Um, so we might see a kid that has a genetic disorder, which is a disorder of like when a chromosome is damaged or such as trisomy 21, or we might have a kid that has an orthopedic impairment, which could be like a broken foot or um, et cetera. And then we treat also in pediatrics, we treat a lot of child development, which is just children that um, for some reason are not developing their skills age appropriately um, for whatever reason. Um, And let me think if there's any other areas, Um, but in a typical day, I get to work and I have, um, in 
the outpatient hospital type setting where I see outpatient um, kids, I'll see four patients usually in the morning and then lunch and then four patients in the afternoon. And each session uh, lasts about 50 minutes to an hour. Um, and we just treat one patient at a time. So it's an individual treatment session with the therapist, with the physical therapist. Um, and our, like I said, our, our children range from children with different disabilities. And I've already mentioned the areas that the disabilities fall under, but our most common diagnosis is cerebral palsy, um, as well as torticollis. And um, so a lot of kids that we see have cerebral palsy. And then we also treat a lot of torticollis. And then we have all different types of diagnosis as well, but those are the most common. So explain for those of us who don't know what CP and torticollis are, and then I guess we'll get into how you treat them. Okay. So cerebral palsy um, is damage that occurs as a result of a brain injury um, sustained during fetal development or during birth. Um, it's a developmental disorder. And it's the leading cause of disabilities in young children. And it causes damage to the motor cortex of the brain and affects um, a child's motor control and formation, as well as like their tone and their muscle development. And uh, for a child with torticollis, what torticollis is, and torticollis usually occurs um, sort of right at birth or shortly after birth, and it, um, it's the tightening of the muscle of the neck. It used to be called dry neck, and it's the tightening of the muscle of the neck called the sternocleidomastoid muscle. I'll just call it SDM for short. And it's the shortening of that muscle that causes the neck, causes the child's head to look like it's tilted and rotated. Um, to the opposite direction, it'll tilt towards the same direction as that muscle, and then it'll rotate towards the opposite side. So the parent will say to their pediatrician, or the pediatrician will notice that the child's head is always tilted to one side, and that they're always looking in one direction. Um, and so they're treated very early on because um, their muscles can become shortened um, on one side from being tilted, and then range of motion and it can affect their development, their developmental milestones, um, as well as it can contribute to flattening of the head, which is more common now that we have all these seats and uh, car seats that we carry around. Children are getting flatter heads and more torticollis. Um, and there's multiple factors that can cause the torticollis, such as uh, just not enough space while they're in utero to move around, uh, being on their back a lot in their infant car seat and in swings in different places to keep them occupied and um, less amount of tummy time. So we always encourage a lot of tummy time for our kids that have um, torticollis and we do stretches for them, um, lots of parent education, we'll do stretching and strengthening of the muscle and massage of the muscle, and, um, and just parent education is most important for torticollis um, and positioning. 
making sure they're out of their infant care or their car seat and that they're only used when they're in the car um, and that they are out of swings as much as possible and that they get lots of tummy time during the day. And why are the, like, car seats and swings and stuff bad? Because some parents will go, oh, I can put my child in a swing if I want to. And, oh, my God, no, it's pretty bad. So Yeah, it's not that it's bad. It's just the amount of time. Yeah, like, don't don't do it excessively, yeah. Right, exactly. You just have to make sure you're not excessively clean and things like that because the baby's head is very soft. Um, from zero to 12 months old, the skull is very soft, and so it's forming. And so if there's something always against the back side of the skull, it can flatten out the skull. So um, it's important that they sleep on their backs at night. I mean, that's been something that's really been part of the back to sleep program. But then during the day, we have to make sure that they get enough tummy time to work on their development. So that's all where your first developmental milestone comes from is on your belly. So we have to make sure during the day we do a lot of tummy time and a lot of time out of infant car seat. Um, the car seat should really just stay in the car and the child shouldn't be carried around in the car seat everywhere they go. You can see why, especially if it's you know, the car seat in. Um, yeah. And you also have to make sure you have a lot of time outside those car seats and that while there's daycares and things like that, they're not always um, but they have time to work on control of their neck muscle. Oh yeah, like like we're all for car seats when it's safe, but don't don't like every minute it's of every excess. day is not good. Any, yeah. Anything in excess, <laughs> something in excess. So if if they're on the back of their heads a lot, then they will tend to have a flatter head back. Yeah. Um. So, uh, what? Symptoms typically do you treat in CP? Like, how do you treat like excessive tone in CP? For those of us who don't know, I know all too well. But for those of us who don't, let's just you know, can we go through that? <laughs> well, um, children with CP have a lot of movement disorder, like movement issues, and uh, they get a lot of contractures and they're little extremely so. Uh, the CP because it's a damaging neurological and it's your brain or your spine or the nerve um, around there. And so when that damage occurs, then things are flowing right um, to your muscles, to the nerves. And so they, they, a lot of what we treat is like the range of motion deficits, which means like your muscles become tight. And we teach you stretching programs and ways to, um, try to keep you from getting contractions, especially in your hands and your upper extremities and in your ankles. Um, And we will help make sure that you get the bracing that you need for, like, your wrist or your, and that's usually to do with occupational therapy, but anyway, in pediatrics, it kind of overflows. So, um, like wrist braces and the PT will make sure you get your ankle braces. They're called AFOs or SFOs. Um, and we will help do strengthening programs with the child uh, for their home program. And we try to help the child be as independent as possible or help the caregiver 
can figure out ways to be able to manage the child's care easier, um, like transferring the child, et cetera, in and out of cars, coming from the bed, in a wheelchair, and if and it depends on CP is such a blanket term or so many things, the child can be very mild and you can hardly tell that they even have CP. Or they can be severe to where um are dependent on their parent for everything and their caregiver for everything they do. Meet their needs. Um, so there's a wide range that you could have to figure out, depending on the kid, how to treat it uh, based on their symptoms and how severe they are. Um, but mostly we're doing a lot of range of motion, uh, a lot of opening, making sure their core is strong so they can sit independently. Um, trying to make transfers more independent as possible. I'm going from like a, like I said, their bed to the chair, uh, and making just sure that they can participate in community activities if that's possible. Um, so we work on all that. When they're really little, you know, it might be that we help uh, teach them ways to walk, even if it means with an assistive device like a walker, and we would help get them to walker. Or uh, crawling, we, talk, we teach crawling to uh, little children. So it just depends on what their need is at the time. And whatever makes them more independent, their milestone, uh, if it's possible. And tell us, like, about the more about the different types of bracing, like, and what they do. Okay, so. Um, as far as AFOs stand for um, ankle, foot, orthosis, and um, a lot of our children with CP, as well as toe walkers, for example, we might um, have the doctor, or the doctor may write you down it before they ever come to us, write a prescription for AFO. And what those do is ankle, foot, orthosis, they help provide ankle stability um, for the ankle when their muscles just aren't as good as we need them to be to maintain a stable ankle for, like, walking or movement. Um, that helps with that. It looks, it's, like, made out of plastic, and it might have a hinge on it that hinges at the ankle, and it has straps, buffer straps on it. Um, you also see those in stroke patients sometimes, similar. Um, so those go up to the calf area, and down past the toes and look like a little plastic suit. They can wear them inside their shoes or without shoes, depending on how they're made. And then we have SMOs, which stand for superior malleor orthosis, which go right above the ankle bone. Uh, they're not quite as high as the AFOs, and they help provide a little bit of ankle stability, but still provide a lot of foot um, positioning, help position the foot in a better position. And they also make shoe inserts for kids that need shoe inserts that need not the ankle control, but just their foot in a more properly aligned position. Um, we, um, have, we have children who wear night braces, like to help stretch out their hamstring muscles, so wear like a night tight brace. Or they might wear an ankle brace, like an AFO, but one at night um, to stretch out. Their dorsal flexors, which are what um, 
like your calf muscles, they're gastric soleus muscles. Those point down into walkers. Those get tight into walkers. I mean, so you might have a brace for that. And then they make other braces too. But those are our main braces that we see in a typical treatment day. We'll definitely see half of our caseloads will probably have some sort of brace um, that they wear uh, because it is so common in our line of work. Yes, we we used to joke uh, at my summer intensives that uh, we 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 were becoming our own little equipment clinic because kids would have therapy just three and four times a week. So there's no sense in lugging all that equipment back home because some of them were coming from Carolina even. So they yeah. would just leave it here. And we've been at the clinic, and we'd have names about everything, and there'd be gait trainers and walkers and canes and, yeah. Oh, yes. We deal with a lot of equipment. As you say, we have gait trainers for children that need a little more assistance with walking. We have walkers, but most of our walkers go behind the kids instead of the front, like you would see. Um, Like people think of walkers that go in front of people that you see, like the elderly walking with, or these go behind you. Um, They do better with our children for their gait. Um, If they're called posterior walkers, then we have forearm crutches that kids can use. And then, of course, we have a lot of kids that are in wheelchairs, um, different types of wheelchairs. Uh, so we get a lot of equipment and a lot of equipment needs, and um, a lot of our kids have standers at home where it helps them to stand stand up and get uh, weight bearing in their legs, and it helps with stretching and digestion. So we have a lot of kids with standers. Yeah. Um, Dairy-supported standing is good if you do it in the way of alignment, which I guess We'll get into later because I've gone through those issues. And if you don't do it in the right alignment, it's bad. But if you do it in the right alignment, it's amazing. So, and that's part of what we do too is try to make sure that everything is in a better alignment that, um, and more appropriate alignment to to decrease the impact on the joints of the body. And um, I was thinking about it. Uh, you were asking me about what I did, and that I told more about the medical side, about the um, outpatient physical therapy. But in the school system where I work as well, because uh, I work both part-time, um, the school system is a little bit different because the school system therapist treats according to the physical therapist, according to how their disability impacts their ability to access their school environment. So it's not so medical as it is an educational model where I'm making sure they can access their school environment physically. Like, can they get their wheelchair to the sink? Can they get their wheelchair? Can they go from the classroom to the gym? Can they be repositioned in class? Um, things like that. So it's a little bit different in that it's not quite as medical. It's more of an education model. Um, in the school system. So. Yes. Sometimes, like, if you're, if the school is really good, like my school was, like, they'll let them, like, use the weight room and work on strengthening. But the school therapist doesn't also, the school therapist doesn't have, have access to all the equipment that an outside therapy would 
and obviously they can't like you know get scripts or anything so so I mean it's more limited than an outside therapist would be right right and we have equipment that we um, use in the school system like we have standards and um, great trainers that we use for kids like in our classes that have some of our um, more um, severely um, physically handicapped students will have equipment in those rooms to help reposition them throughout the day. Um, but it is limited. We don't have as many treatment areas. And I go to all the schools in this particular school system. And so we don't have access to a treatment room. So sometimes we have to treat in the classroom. Um, and sometimes it's more like checking in on the student and make sure they're still access to their environment if they're in regular classes. So it is a little bit different. Um, but, you know, we do, I do have to manage the equipment needs and do adjustments to equipment in the school system quite often. So. Yes, but, yes, and the school system is, like, literally teachers run out of money for papers. So they're not too keen on replacing the equipment. <laughs> And also so, from grants and special education, special education department. So yes, yes. It's, it's limited. It's not just an abundance, but we get yeah. we get we get the equipment we need, and it's just it's it's not an abundance. So we have to like squeeze it out. But you know, it's we're getting there. I would I I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think it's getting better. I think. As we know more about disabilities, that things are getting a little bit better, but it's still always education is always um, there's always a money factor in education. So yes. I think it's better than it used to be. I think now that we realize how much it helps people, I think government does help um, provide what is needed for kids with disabilities. But there's always going to be money shortage in education in general. So. Yes, and so, <laughs> yeah, and I guess lastly, tell us about uh, Botox for muscle tone because I get questions about that all the time, and it used to be a running joke between the aides and the kids in middle school, like, oh, like, not mean joking, but, like, fun joking, like, oh, yeah, she's going to go get Botox, like, so tell us what that actually is and how it helps most Well, the Botox, you know, you hear about Botox for skin, like sometimes it was a wrinkle, things like that. It's similar but different in a way in that what they use the Botox for is in our children with CP um, is, uh, like I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of problems with the range of motion like in our hamstrings. On their calf muscles, they just gassed up the lift muscles, and it affects your ability to walk, etc. So they found that Botox could be injected into muscles that were tight, and it helps to relax the muscles some. Um, it doesn't, it's not always successful on every patient, and sometimes it can become where they get immune to it in a way because they've done it like on it every six month rotation or every year rotation where they'll get Botox injections to that muscle area or to most of the muscle areas. And then after a while, they develop a tolerance to it and it's not as effective and they can 
break, but I get a lot of my kids. We get regular Botox injections, get them about every six months. Um, so they might get them in their gastrocnemius muscles to help them be able to walk with um, less toe walking, or they might get it in their hand and the muscles that um, go towards the hand to keep them from fisting so much, from keeping their hands balled up. Um, so it it has its benefits, and it's always weighed out with each kid whether they need it, whether doctor or not, as a parent. Um, but sometimes it works wonderfully, and it can be used in conjunction with, like, serial casting, where they cast the lower extremities or the upper extremity uh, to help get a better positioning uh, of that area, and they can use it in conjunction with that, maybe both up first, casting or after the Botox also we really encourage the child to wear the braces like their AFOs that we talked about earlier or if they do the hamstring where their knee mobilizers at night instantly because um, it works better if you have something that allows for prolonged stretch after the Botox um, so we always encourage like if they have braces such as the leg braces they wear those after the Botox um, the Botox Botox lasts about months. The effects of Botox. So I think that's about it as far as Botox. How long did you say it lasts? I think typically like three to four months. Wow. I well, I guess that's that's about how long it's lasted with me. I I thought it would have lasted at least six. But it just depends on the patient and how, you know, if they're wearing their braces and things like that. And usually they'll be on a six months. It can last up to six months, but usually, you know, the parents start saying, well, they get a little tight. And it'll be right before their six-month appointment to have the touch again. So, um, yeah. But it doesn't, it doesn't last forever. Like, usually they end up having to get the touch again. Yeah, it's all the Uh other. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, Shelly is one of my very favorite human beings on the planet. She is the nicest. And uh, that was her first podcast experience, and she did great. Uh, Better than I did, I think, at some points. Uh, No, I'm kidding. But uh, if uh, you guys, I hope you guys got a lot of information out of that, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple or whatever you're listening to this on, if it allows rating and reviews. And we will see you guys next episode. You can follow me on Twitter at Devin Real Talk, Instagram at Real Talk Podcast Official, and like the Facebook page, Real Talk All Things Inclusion. And we will see you guys next episode. Bye. Thank you guys so much for listening today. You can visit us online at realtalkpodcastonline.wordpress.com. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Talk and on Instagram at realtalkpodcastofficial. You can also email us at devinereaders, W-I-E-T-E-R-S, at gmail.com. Thank you guys.